Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card. Because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store. Sports fans, let me break down our latest news. First, make sure you're following me on Twitter. I offer live in-game analysis most nights, complete with video highlights. Also, make sure to check out all of our YouTube videos. Today, we're putting out a Chicago Bulls What They Run In, showcasing what Fred Hoiberg has his team running on offense. And if you're a Knicks fan, make sure to be there every Tuesday for our premium Knicks Breakdown Weekly. Simply the best weekly roundup show on the Knicks you will find, complete with video analysis, advanced stats, and interviews with Knicks beat writers. You in? What is expected point value? How has the game evolved under the new focus of analytics? Based on the math, why would we ever follow a player to put him on the line? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Hey sports fans, Coach Nick here and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am excited to bring on friend of the show, Ian Levy, who is a senior NBA editor for Fansided and overall basketball friend. So Ian, uh, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I wanted to bring you on because I was on your show a few weeks ago with Tommy, and um, we the, the subject was uh, about Russell Westbrook and finishing at the rim, and I want to tap into your expertise on advanced analytics and expected shot values based on where it is and who takes it. So let's jump into that, shall we? Sure. Thanks uh, for having me on. Um, so expected value is not a... Um, is not a concept that's unique to basketball or even sports. You know, it's a uh, something that uh, permeates uh, economics and all sorts of other fields. But the idea is um, for your cost, for your opportunity cost, what you can expect on a return. So when we talk about basketball and we talk about expected value, we're talking about possessions. Those are the currency that teams have to spend. Um, and then what we're talking about is what different sorts of possession outcomes uh, average uh, in terms of points. Um, can be a little weird because we talk about um, you know an expected value. Maybe somebody has an expected value of 0.75 you know points per shot, and obviously no one ever <laughs> scores 0.75 points per shot. You know they get two or they get three or they get one for a free throw, and that's it. Um, but the idea is sort of looking at the average. You know over a hundred shots or over a thousand shots uh, for you know somebody shooting from the mid range, somebody shooting a three pointer, somebody finishing on the pick and roll. What is the value that you expect from those possessions? Um, and then sort of having that understanding, uh, look at a team's offense and you can sort of see, you know, who's allocating things in effective ways, um, where, you know, players might need to improve, uh, shot selection and things like that. You know, it's sort of all about balancing things out at the team or the player level to make sure you're getting the most out of those possessions. You know, overall, I've been thinking about this recently because we now have several seasons of uh, possession-based data. And we're looking at a lot of the defensive rating, offensive rating, and these and pace and these different things. And so, you know, what I was kind of thinking about was, you know, there are different trends that happen over the course of several years. So, for instance, someone, you know, if your offensive rating was 101 in 1996, that might have been third in the league. You were really good. Now, let's just say 101 is probably like, you know, 15th, 16th. 
So it's weird to me because in some respects, like these numbers are not always going to keep trending up or, you know, if, if we're all moving to the same similar kind of style of play, then at what point are we going to be judging teams poorly or negatively when in fact they're still doing, they're still like getting close to some sort of optimal mathematical equation and how they should be attacking. Does that make any sense? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so le- yeah, league averages have changed over time. You've had you know dead ball eras where scoring's really low and defense dominates, and um, eras you know where everybody's pushing the pace and scoring through the roof. So if you're just looking at a team's uh, offensive efficiency or defensive efficiency, you sort of have to put it in the context of um, of their era. So uh, like Basketball Reference has, if you look at a team's uh, like franchise page, and you can see all the seasons for the Spurs or or whatever uh, on that page they have a column that says relative offensive rating or relative defensive rating and that will tell you for that season what the team's offensive or defensive efficiency was compared to the league average so if the spurs were plus 2.5 that means their offensive efficiency was two and a half points per 100 possessions better than the league average that year um so there and there's a few other places who do sort of similar things but um yeah i mean that's that's really important uh three pointers are another great example the expected value of three pointers has evolved over time um in part because players have gotten better at making them offenses have gotten sort of more astute at at figuring out how to create them and how to create open ones um and then if you track the expected value of three pointers uh you know over the past two decades you see this weird sort of uh spike and then dip when the three-point line moved in and then moved back out um so for those years where the where the three-point line was closer the expected value of three-pointers was much higher you know all of a sudden because it was closer and it was easier for guys to make so yeah the the, the values are definitely not static they're very context dependent and that's one of the things that can make it tricky too um when you're talking about the expected value of you know i don't know uh mason Plumley shooting three pointers you might only have a sample size of you know six or seven shots over the course of his career to judge on and so uh you know whatever you sort of calculate might not be that meaningful or might not be a, a representative sample right it kind of reminds me of what having the elections right now where they try and weight certain demographics and yeah, I was listening to some podcast where, you know, there might be like one black guy in Ohio that wants to vote Republican. But since he's he, he gets weighted like as 100 different people. I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and so but I, I like it because there's some there's definitely some crossover there. But let's start with like three point shooting for since you just brought that up, because, you know, if you look overall, we're talking about, you know, what the expected point you know uh, value would be for a possession you know, like what is good or what is not. I, I'm assuming like sort of 1.0 points per possession is some sort of a cutoff for, you know, whether you want to evaluate good versus bad. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think the league average, um, I mean, the NBA does it a little bit differently than basketball reference. So you get slightly different numbers. But I think the league average uh, – by basketball reference last year was maybe like uh, 1.06 or 1.07 points per 100 possessions was the league average. So uh, any possession where you're sort of generating a value above that is probably a positive and anything below that, you know, maybe suboptimal. So here's my here's my conundrum, because, mm-hmm. you know, we also regard players who shoot, you know, 40 percent from three point land as elite. Right. Mm -hmm. That is a good cutoff, I think, there. I think the league average for three point shooting is somewhere around 35 percent. It usually is around there. Um, So the question I have is, is, you know, we will criticize guys who shoot 30 percent from three uh, and who might take a a high volume, four, five, six a game. And as as that's problematic because in the context, there are so many more shooters that depending on what they shoot, will shoot a higher percentage. So they're lower for this era than the rest of their things. However, if you look at what the points per possession is on a 30% from a three pointer, uh, if my math is correct, is that 0.9? Yeah. So suddenly 0.9 points per possession isn't such a horrible thing to really criticize someone on, is it? Yeah, I mean that's that's one of the things that's tricky about this is a um, it's really easy to get lost in sort of the aesthetics and how things look, and then it's really easy to say um, it's really easy to sort of get lost in these as abstract things and say <clears throat> you know this is a more efficient option, so the team should just do this more often as though 
teams have total, you know, complete control over where the ball goes and who shoots on every possession. You know, the defense has a lot to do with it. The team's ability to execute has a lot to do with it. But with three-pointers, I mean, this basic math thing is one of the reasons that we see so many three-pointers now than we did a few years ago. Um, a Somebody who shoots 33.3% on three-point shots, uh, that has the same expected value as somebody who shoots 50% on two-point shots. Um, the expected value of those two things match up. But sort of in our head, aesthetically, a 50% two-point shot seems like a good shot, and a 33.3% three-point shooter, you know, that seems like a bad shot. And so in, the, in some of these things, it's just sort of our scale and these cognitive biases, the way we have them in our head, um, are, are out of whack. The other thing, though, is – and this is where um, – sometimes the the discussion gets really sort of uh obtuse and and um uh, you know the two sides arguing so uh analytics uh or people who who are interested in analytics often get painted as as advocates for nothing but three-pointers you know three-pointers are the best take them all the time um and uh so the the uh, opponents of that will say rightly so that it's absurd to imagine a team just taking three pointers the more three pointers you take theoretically the value of those three point shots goes down because the defenses are expecting it so the Houston Rockets teams know that they don't really need to defend the Rockets the same way in the mid range they really just need to defend them at the three point line and the rim and so that reduces the value of the Rockets three pointers you know in theory um and so all of those those things are are sort of in play there as well. You know, I get a little bit um, troubled when I, when I hear like you know this team is, is doesn't shoot enough threes as if there is this magic number. And when I look at certain teams out there, like Memphis is a good example where they simply don't have people to shoot the threes. So what would you want? You want their guys who don't aren't comfortable don't, wouldn't be very successful at shooting those. Uh, and, and then to throw in the fact that they're a playoff team that's done very well when healthy are a real threat without having to rely on that. I, I just get you know a little bit caught up in the notion of like there seems to be this 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 very binary argument about it where I uh, you know as a from a coaching perspective at least you know if I I would love to be the guy who plays like Houston it sounds great but if I don't have that there's got to be other ways to do it and I don't want to have somebody else say oh that's, you cannot do it that way it will never work again playing two bigs and not shooting outside so how do how do those two things collide and 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 then not collide well, I, there's a lot of different ways to generate efficient offense. If you look at the three most efficient offenses last year, um, I, I think, uh, or maybe I'm going for the top five, it was like San Antonio, Golden State, Toronto, Cleveland, and the Clippers. And those five offenses operated like completely differently, like different, uh, you know, really different numbers of three-pointers, really different amounts of like ball movement, player movement. You know, Toronto and Cleveland were sort of more stagnant, more isolation, Um and so there, you know, there's a lot of different paths to get to efficiency. And then one of the other things to take into effect is, or take into account is when we're talking about like, oh, teams should take more three pointers. It's that's a um, that's a big picture perspective. So we're talking about like across the season, across a big sample, this team would be better off if they took more three pointers. But this season is made up of individual possessions, and on any individual possession, it's totally reasonable that the best shot might not be a three-pointer. You know, in the flow of that offense, a three-pointer doesn't manifest. You know, there there are plenty of situations where a two-pointer or even a mid-range jump shot are better than a three-pointer in that case. Um, And one of the the best examples of this is if you – if you talk about a like a, a like a final possession, so a team needs a needs a basket to win or tie. In that case, uh, a, uh, even though a fifty percent two point shot and a thirty three point three percent three point shot have the same expected value, if you're talking about a single possession where you need a basket, you want the two pointer because in that case you have a higher chance of getting the two points. If that makes sense. Oh so yes. The ex- 
So the expected value of the three-pointer is is valuable over a bigger sample. On an individual possession, it may be worth more worthwhile to take the two-pointer, especially, yeah, those late-game situations, I think, are, are a real clear example of that. Right. I mean, then you can also factor in whether the ref is going to call a foul or not. If you, if you risk going <laughs> too close and the, uh, you get fouled and you miss a shot. I mean, there's so many things going on there, which is why experience is so important, now, both from coaching and playing. And you see the guys who have the most experience with those situations tend to you know make the best decisions for the team let me ask you this because um, we have a notion of you know two point percentage at the rim and the th- and three point percentage and all these different things uh, and, and also expected point value for per possession but I'm kind of curious is if, is anybody measuring uh, success rate per possession so the idea being that even though let's say 30 percent from the three gives you uh, you know nine points per possession or point nine points per possession, it, um, you're still only scoring on 30% of your possessions that way. And I wonder if there's some notion to that when you're looking at you know, uh, offense and independent of actual points, but you're looking at success. Does anyone talk about that? Yeah, I mean, that's actually one of, uh, I can't remember what he called it, but that was one of Dean Oliver's like original statistics from basketball on paper. Oh. I think maybe it was called floor percentage or score percentage i can't remember exactly what what the title was but he he looked at true shooting percentage or or effective field goal percentage and the percentage of possessions where a player generated points and so that included free throws whatever so even if somebody goes to the line and just makes one free throw you would count it in there Um, and that's another way that's another way of looking at it the idea there is when you have teams that shoot a lot of three-pointers generally there's more variance so uh the rockets a couple years ago might be a good example of this they shot so many three-pointers that um you know they were just as likely to sort of win huge as they were to you know get blown out or fall apart or have these ugly losses um and and so that yeah that is one of the issues with with three-pointers is they generate a higher return uh, but they they sort of induce more variance into your offense. All right, and this is a terrific, uh, brings me right to my next point, which is now that we have so many seasons of data on high volume three point shooting, which we hadn't had in the past ever, up in the last, I would say, what, five years or so we've had this. So I'm starting to think that there's, there, because there's a lot of issues and a lot of influences on three point shooting, and one of those being uh, psychological. So I just had Doug Gottlieb on the show uh, this morning, and he was talking about how he was a really good shooter in high school, and then in, in he got the yips uh, in his freshman year of, of college, and they tried working with him in the middle of the year, and he shot like below 50% from the free throw line for his career, and he just got, you know, it stuck in his head. So, but the reason why I bring that up is because. I'm thinking we might need to start looking at teams like the Rockets or all the teams in a much more macro sense where you know we can't look at it as one season. So, for instance, they had a kind of a crappy year last year. They didn't shoot as well from a three-point land. Some of these guys who might have been really good for a couple of years are really tailed off. And I'm starting to wonder, looking at mechanics and the, the, um, the, uh, the, the mental nature of shooting those long-distance shots, I think that like teams could be prone for that kind of variance, but not across like one season. It could be you could have two seasons of a real big dip and then three seasons of a of a big crest. Thoughts? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, three point shooting, I think, is fairly stable, but uh, as sort of a player skill, but um, it's subject to the same sort of aging curve as anything else. Um, it's maybe, you know, it's not as, as, um, not as related to athleticism as something like shot blocking or generating steals, but it's definitely affected. Um, but even when we talk about three point shooting being stable, uh, a three point percentage that goes up, you know, one or two points, uh, percentage points, uh, you know, from one year to the next, that's a huge difference for a high volume shooter. You know, uh, Kyle Corver shot 45% or whatever, you know, two years ago. And last year he was like down at, you know, 38 or 39%. You know, we would still consider that an, an elite three point shooting season, but because he takes such a high volume, that difference was enormous for the Houston or for the Hawks offense last year. I mean, hugely detrimental, um, both in, in the return that they're generating and on how much teams have to defend Corver and how much attention they have to pay to him and how that opens things up for everybody else. 
Yeah, great point. And like what, what got me thinking about this was a guy like Danny Green, who's another one who his <laughs> mechanics are extremely troubling to me. And when you watch him shoot, he doesn't extend his arm all the way. To me, that feels like something that's hard to replicate all the time because the arm never quite stops exactly where you want. Whereas if you let it like a Steph Curry lets it extend all the way through every time you can replicate that. So the dude almost won MVP of the finals. He was an elite shooter for several seasons, and then all of a sudden, it completely drops off. And so I started to think, like, I wonder, is this sort of the natural result of, like, like you know, not exactly poor mechanics, but something that, to me, would indicate inconsistency, and it, which didn't happen for a long enough time until finally it really caught up to him. So I'm wondering if that is, if that's related, or I guess we're going to have to find out again this year if it changes when he gets back on the court, but... Uh, that's what was. That's what I'm, it's on my mind. I'm kind of thinking of that, cause, especially because the, the three-point shot of all the things is the one <laughs> thing we haven't seen taken in this volume for a hundred years up until now. And the other thing is, it takes a really long time for three-point shooting percentage to stabilize, as, as in terms of it being a meaningful measure. So, uh, Daryl Blackport did some research at Nylon Calculus last year, uh, or maybe two years ago, and he found that it takes 750 three-point attempts before you can say that that three-point percentage is sort of an accurate representation of that shooter's ability. Everything else in between is a variance. So, for most guys, that's probably two three seasons worth of three-point shooting so a guy like Danny Green who's maybe taking 250 300 threes a year you could have 300 you know threes where his percentage drops off and 300 threes you know the next season where his percentage climbs back up and it's all part of sort of the normal fluctuation of his whatever his career three-point percentage is you know if he's a uh, you know, he's a four, let's say he's a 40% three point shooter. He could shoot 37% one season and 43% the next season. Um, and it all works out the same sort of in the, in the aggregate. But for those seasons, again, like that's a huge, huge difference. Uh, that it's just fascinating to me because uh, I, and I love these these ideas, especially because like for me as a coach, when I'm hearing uh, these kind of insights into like how many uh, threes until you solidify, to me it's all about like in the off season, what are you going to do to fix those things? So like whenever I like I've I've um, uh, helped some shooters in the past, and we looked at very specific parts of their shot, uh, where the pass is coming from, and those kind of things to actually train them better then. Uh, as opposed to looking at it from a X's and O's standpoint and how to like reshape the game that way. To me, it's almost more about the individual improvement, which is why I think these numbers are maybe even more important going forward. Yeah, and it's I mean, you see some guys who have really developed three-point shots like out of nowhere over the past couple of years. Um, and some of them sort of make sense. You know, guys like Al Horford just sort of stretching their range another couple of feet. Um, then you got a guy like, you know, Al Farouk Aminu last year who just all of a sudden, you know, shot 37%. And, um, it's sort of hard to tell because again it's you know not a high number of attempts and you didn't have a high number of, of attempts before that so I think we can probably say that he's gotten better as a three-point shooter um, I think it's probably also fair to say that he's likely to not be a three thirty-seven percent three-point shooter you know going forward that that jump is is probably going to have some regression with it but um, yeah I mean it's sort of hard to tell I think um, it, it's hard to I think it's hard to measure the effects of training and teaching and sort of this work on mechanics because it takes so long uh, statistically to filter out meaningful samples that you know I mean you could be if you're going to be three seasons in before you know if you're if your training techniques are working you know like that's uh kind of self-defeating so you you know it's on some level you just sort of have to trust that you're doing the right thing and, and that it's worth it um you know maybe even if you're not seeing it in the data right away you know, that's interesting to me as well. Has anyone ever done any um, any quantitative analysis of, like, coaching influence? Guys who played, like, I mean, you know, Tony seems to have anecdotally this influence where guys will have career years because of his offense and the way he coaches it. Uh, and I have to mention there's probably coaches out there the opposite. Uh, have, you, have you seen that? Has anyone done anything official for that? I don't think so. Not that I remember seeing it. It's uh... – it seems like a pretty obvious question. So I imagine somebody must have done some work on it. But um, in that situation, too, again, I feel like it might be hard to tease out what is um, what is sort of like a player development result and what is a, um, a, a system, you know, teammate sort of result, you know. 
Uh, it's not hard to imagine guys having three point, you know, career three point shooting seasons seasons with D'Antoni just by virtue of getting great shots, you know, or with Phoenix, you're getting great shots, you know, off of Steve Nash passes. Um, it seems like, uh, you know, I, my three point percentage would probably go up a tick or two shooting off <laughs> of Steve Nash passes. Right. And playing for the Nets this year, you wouldn't have the same looks. And it's, a, it's all relative that way as well, which is it's a very confounding thing because we tend to judge everybody on a very similar baseline, even though it's wildly different and it all depends. But I think it's going to have to be a race between B-Ball Breakdown and, um, and you guys to see who's going to uh, get that article out first and who's got the most <laughs> influence on or the best influence on players. Because uh, it seems like, yeah, you could probably do it. You could look at, like, if a player played with somebody else before that and then the year he uh-huh. switched there, did he go somewhere else after that? It probably takes too much time for me to look at, but <laughs> I think there would be something there. Um, yeah. Let me ask you this about coaching then. You know, we do a lot of five-man lineup analysis, and I, I stare at that mm-hmm. a lot. Um, I think primarily because when I was coaching at the high school level, that was the one stat I needed and I never had. I just didn't have the wherewithal to put that together, and that was mm-hmm. the thing. You know the X's and O's. You know how to communicate with players. But no, there's no clear answer to, as far as who you should play with whom. You know, it's always this sort of alchemy thing going on. So I'm kind of curious – because I imagine you're studying that as well. Does it seem to you, as it does to me, that head coaches in the NBA do not really pay attention as, as much as they should to five-man lineup data? I think it's variable. I think there's some people who you look at and you think, wow, they're really doing a great job of managing the rotations. They're making smart picks. And I think there's some other people where you see obvious sorts of issues and why are they doing this. Um I I know it's hard for me not having coach, not having that coaching experience to sort of weed out the – like there's a lot of competing incentives. So I I circle back to this example a lot, but the Zach Levine point guard experiment, uh, like it seemed like clearly that was not in the Wolves' best short-term interests. Those lineups where he was playing point guard were not good. They were terrible. His numbers were terrible as a point guard. They were much better as a shooting guard. Uh, the team performed better when he was playing shooting guard. Um, but I think it's worth acknowledging that he may be better as a player for having the, had that experience playing point guard. Um, and so I think sometimes we sort of are only looking through the lens of like what gives the team the best chance to win. Um, but I, I think there are probably some situations where coaches are playing suboptimal lineups um, it, just sort of in the raw sense, playing suboptimal lineups for player development goals um, or uh, because they're trying stuff out that they, you know, are want to set up for a playoff matchup, you know, against a different team we want to experiment with this lineup i want to be able to see them for 150 or 100 or 200 minutes this year so that i know you know that they might be able to to work against this one team or in this one situation you know when it comes to the playoffs um and so I think for me, not having that coaching experience, it's sometimes hard for me to sort of separate out. But I, I will agree, there's definitely lineups that I look at, and I'm like, why in the world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> is that the third most used lineup for this team, you know, or why in the world does this does this coach ever use those two guys together at the same time? Yeah, I, I, it's weird, and I also there's there's so much information that we don't know, so I'm kind of being a dick by criticizing them <laughs> because. The guy could be injured a little bit. We don't know, yeah. right? Or he might have been late for practice twice, and they're punishing him, and you know they're keeping it in house. Mm-hmm. Uh, hell, I, I remember I had my, probably my best forward. Uh, you know, just did not want to start. Yeah, and I'm like, that was cool with me, you know. But I had people <laughs> clamoring at my level, like screaming at me, "Why is this guy not starting?" And you know, it wasn't anyone else's business. But still, you uh-huh. know, there there are people. I mean, it's hard to imagine the NBA if somebody wasn't want to start. But <laughs> there are probably other contextual things that uh, that creep into this. Uh-huh. That said, it's like when you get to the playoffs and you had that whole season worth of data, and you, you can see. Um, you know, and I, I ripped to shreds one coach in particular on the Eastern Conference for, for just like abandoning their second most played lineup. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and I suppose he thought maybe it wasn't going to match up well with the other team. But, mm-hmm. you know, then, then there's you know, the good old fashioned notion of, well, make them match up with you, uh, you know, and yeah. see how that works. Which I think we saw in a very surprising way um, with uh, OKC versus the Spurs this year, or this, this past uh, playoff series. Was that surprising to you that they were able to play Cantor and um, uh, Adams together with like Dion Waiters at point guard to start the fourth quarter, and they were beating the Spurs? 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I imagine Cantor and Adams lineup lineups featuring Cantor and Adams last year during the regular season. I imagine they looked terrible before they got into that series. Um, and yeah, it's it's uh, it was it was shocking that they were sort of able to. Um, you know, take something that had not worked in the regular season and make it work in that very specific context. Um, but I mean, I, this is something that's over my head to some degree, but like Zach Lowe wrote a piece uh, during the playoffs and talked about how the Thunder's offense had been really messy uh, during much of the regular season. And part of that was that they were experimenting with these uh, these elements or these changes that they wanted to use against the Warriors. And they looked bad doing it, but it was all practice, you know, that was sort of leading up to when they got to that playoff series they were ready and they had experience and they were sort of ready to roll out that new tool um but yeah it's it's sometimes you get caught by surprise what what works in that really narrow context of a playoff series um i was thinking about it again last night both uh, watching the uh, opening night and and flipping back and forth with the world series and what like like an obscenely small sample size. And as you talk about baseball, you know, guys maybe get, you know, 20 at bats in, in the whole world series, you know, it's such a, such a tiny sample and they're judged on, um, you know, they're, they're judged on that. And it's all sorts of fluky things can happen. Uh, even between, you know, very good teams and very bad teams, really fluky things can happen when you shrink the sample that small. Yeah. What happened to my Cubs bats last night then is what I want to know. <laughs> I mean, I don't watch baseball at all. I grew up down the street from Wrigley field. And so I have, this, you know this some uh, primordial you know, connection, but by the way, is the Cav- was the Cavaliers was the um, Indians pitcher? Is, is he that good? I honestly don't know. This is the first baseball game I've watched uh, in a long good. time. I've caught I've caught bits and pieces of a couple games during the playoffs, but I yeah I haven't watched a full baseball game in years. Uh, I just happened to be flipping back and forth last night, so yeah, yeah I, not not much help there. Well, you know, let's get back to our expected point value because I wanted to bring up one thing that connects to the playoff notion of, of strategy as well is is a free throw percentage where, you know, and they changed the rules, uh, which I don't even know if they needed to change the rule. Do you, with what you're looking at as far as the numbers go, uh, was it even worth dealing with having to change it for these three or four guys that they're hacking all the time at the end of games? Well, I don't think the rule changes were made for any sort of strategic imbalance or um, because the rule was giving anybody an advantage or removing an advantage. I think it was just people hated watching it and there was so much complaint about it. It made the game ugly. Um, so I think the rule change was probably more in response to the aesthetics. Um, but free throw shooting is a really interesting case for um, for expected value because it's sort of an isolated thing. Once you have a guy at the free throw line, especially an intentional foul situation, it removes a, like a lot of the noise like you don't have the potential of a turnover or all these other things it's just the guy at the free throw line um so you know even these terrible uh, free throw shooters deandre jordan and howard and drummond um um, if you give them two free throws, it's actually a, a pretty reasonable uh, offensive rate of return in terms of expected value. Um, so Dwight Howard shooting 55% at the free throw line, if you give him two free throws, the expected value of that is 0.11, which would be an above average offensive outcome. Um, and that doesn't even take into account the um, the possibility of an offensive rebound and a putback. Um, I can't remember who, who wrote it, but I, like two years ago at 538, um, when when Hacka DeAndre Jordan was sort of at its peak in the playoffs, uh, somebody wrote a piece about um, the expected value of that and how ludicrous it was in that situation. Because in addition to DeAndre Jordan being like in the in the fifties on uh, his free throw percentage, the Clippers were insanely good at offensive rebounding off of his misses. And so if you factor in the the chances of him scoring from the free throw line and you you roll in the chances of an offensive rebound and a putback, it was like a really good offensive outcome for the Clippers and and sort of much uh probably much preferable to a lot of other things that you know could come out of their offense and what was shocking most about that was that they that the spurs lost that series <laughs> and you would argue it was a razor thin in the, in the seven game series they went down to the last possession uh you know the fact that they continued to do this strategy and popovich couldn't recognize that it wasn't a it wasn't working and b the math just doesn't add up anyway as a viable strategy it was very odd, and I don't think anyone even at that time you know, had enough of a, of a perspective yet, but I think now we would probably all agree that it's not a viable strategy to do uh, if the guy is shooting 50% or even maybe slightly less than that. Would that, would that be accurate? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess Andre Jordan would be the one exception because his free throw shooting was so low last year. I mean, it was sub 40, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so then you're you're sort of talking about a different ball game. You know, that's that's um, you know you're you're shooting sub 40 percent at the three po- three at the free throw line. That's like a contested mid range jumper. You know, sort of equivalency in in expected value. So I think it's uh, maybe worth it in that case. But um, Pop's pretty shrewd, and the only thing I can think of is is um, is gambling on the sort of accumulated mental effects of that. Um, you know, Tom Habistro did some great work on that this summer about how free throw shooting really is a mental problem, that these guys who shoot 50 percent, Dwight Howard, they shoot 50 percent at the line, they shoot 85 percent in practice. It's not mechanics. It's not um, it, it's it's mental. It's about confidence and, you know, the yips, as you were saying before. Um, and so maybe that's the gamble by Popovich. If I keep fouling this guy, if I keep putting him on the line in the playoffs, sort of on this national stage, and I just keep highlighting this flaw, um, you know, maybe he just tanks enough that it's, you know, that it works. Um, but, you know, sort of at the at the regular season level or at the season long average level. I, in almost every case, I think it's it's not a great uh, it's not a great outcome to be putting guys on the free throw line. Fair enough. And for even greater context, in that year, the Clippers were very thin. They had almost no bench. And by fouling so much, they allowed the starters to rest a lot more than they would have. And and you can't come down and attack quickly like they were so good at. And so that's the other factor. Like you talk about the offensive rebounding uh, thing, which is not always thought about either on that. But what about the notion of you're not coming down off of a miss and attacking the defense quickly and getting all those wonderful basketball plays they would normally do? So, um, you know, for all those reasons, and it's, you know, aesthetic, it could be the very top one, which is why they changed the rule. But uh, for a lot of reasons, it just felt like, you know, it's just not basketball. And I, I just, I'm glad that they're, it looks like they're stacking it now where it will be less likely for anyone to do that. Because, listen, I, I, I know you probably agree with me. I, I, I turn those games off. I can't watch them. I'm almost in the playoffs, I can't watch them when they do that. Yeah, it, it can be painful. And it's... Um... I mean, I, I feel it's not fun to watch, but I also feel horrible for those guys just sort of having your greatest. I mean, I know they're athletes and they get paid millions and millions of dollars to play basketball. And that's that's pretty great. Sorry, it's hard to feel sorry for them on some level. But, um, you know, just having your like your biggest flaw, the thing you're worst at having to, you know, stand on national television and do that, you know. 15 times a game while everybody watches like that's I don't know it's uncomfortable for sure <laughs> yeah yeah and you know and it's, it's right the funny thing with the mental part is is you're right because you can make the 85% in practice and then it just disappears uh, I would still like to think that there are some mechanical issues that are related to that but you're right it's 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 everything is combined that's the other thing about shooting is like the shooting is not just these dots on a shooting chart and that's the other thing is as we're looking at all these numbers and amassing these huge quantities of data, you know, it, it gets sometimes way too noisy for me because I need to know, like, I can't treat every three-point shot the same. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, we can talk about Steph Curry's expected value on a three-point shot. Well, he's not a good example. Let's take somebody human. Uh, <laughs> let's take, uh, you know, Wesley Matthews shooting a three-pointer. We can calculate his expected value, but it's different if it's a catch-and-shoot or if it's off the dribble. And it's different if the defender's two feet away or four feet away. And it's different if it's from the corner or if it's above the break. Um, you know, and it's different uh, depending on what the shot clock is at. And it's, uh, you know, there's there's a million different little variables that, that change it. And so so uh, the more you slice it, the less meaningful the numbers are because the sample sizes get smaller. So at, at some level, you sort of have to take the noise. Um, the most interesting, sort of the holy grail, um, and Kurt Goldsbury and, and uh, some of the researchers he's, he worked with um, built a system that, that did this uh, a few years ago, but uh, it was a Sloan research paper. But the holy grail is something that calculates expected value in real time and tracks it. So um, uses sort of like all the contextual data uh, calculates the expected value on all of the sort of sample size and then uh, offers that information. Um, so they, they tracked, uh, they tracked a specific Spurs possession in that research paper and they sort of tracked all of these points. So Tony Parker, you know, comes off a curl uh, at the elbow and catches the ball. If he drives down the lane, the expected value is this. If he kicks it to Kawhi Leonard on the wing, the expected value then changes to this. Um, if he, you know, 
know, spins back the other way and tries to, you know, penetrate the other direction, then the expected value is this. Um, and so the holy grail is, is sort of being able to to really slice it down to all of those those uh, individual levels. But the um, if I remember correctly, the 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 big reveal on the uh, on that paper was that they needed to use this massive supercomputer uh, and that they had it at MIT or Harvard to do all the calculations. So it was sort of uh, absurdly unrealistic to imagine that, you know, on the sideline, a coach running that on their iPad, you know, during timeouts. Right. Well, but that, that's the work you do, in, you know, on the off days and during practice. And the, But the other thing is, we're, you know, we do have a supercomputer in our brains, but yeah. while you're going full speed against NBA players, it's not accessible. But certainly you can look at that as a – this is going to be the conundrum for coaches going forward, especially at the NBA level, is what do we do with this information? Right, they, they can have it, and I think a lot of certain you know generational uh, coaches will just simply throw it out and not want to look at it. But I believe there are there are going to be ways where you can perhaps subtly influence the players into more into better decisions based on the math, which I think would also you know you, you wouldn't necessarily be oh he's keep trying to keep me down right coach doesn't like me you know yeah. the coach can finally say no we after you know 300 possessions of this we can tell you that kicking it out to the corner is you know you'll get better yeah. that's what you should be looking at first practice everything else but you know you can maybe you know adjust how you do your reps a certain way so I think going forward we can actually get a little bit closer to that but uh but yeah, it's it's interesting. Well, I have this theory too that uh, that what we call basketball IQ is just people who sort of intuitively understand expected uh, expected value, um, and they might not use those terms and that terminology. But we talk about guys making smart plays. It's guys who understand we have a better chance of getting a good outcome if I you know, roll off this screen or if I make sure I, I get that skip pass here, you know, or if I uh, uh, trail this guy around the screen or whatever that, um, that, that, that what we think of as these really smart players, it's, it's sort of an intuitive understanding of expected value more than some other sort of abstract basketball thing. For sure. I, I like that. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. And I think that, again, that goes to sort of experience and reps. You know, you don't get, you don't suddenly have basketball IQ in the, on that level uh, like that. Now, there are certain guys tend to have other parts of the basketball IQ we might consider, like positioning. They always seem mm-hmm. to be in a good position on the court, like defensively. Um, and that could very well be natural or some sort of, you know, uh, inclination to math or, or angles. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've noticed that with my players is that, Whenever I've come across a guy who's really good, like help defense and positioning, uh-huh. I'm always, I always ask him, I say, are you good at math? And uh-huh. almost always they say, yeah, I'm actually really good at math. And it makes sense yeah. to me because you can see that part of the floor. Uh, by the way, the defensive side is the thing that we're most challenged with, I would imagine. I, I'm really, I still haven't seen any good advanced analytic stat for the defensive side that's made me feel at all comfortable that it's, that's completely accurate. No, and I think we're sort of destined to be in that loop, uh, you know, for a while. The problem is that what uh, the problem is that statistics are about counting things, things that can be counted, and often defensive plays are things that cannot be counted. You know, it's um, a good defense is the absence of things happening, and so. Uh, you know, it's you. You can't track a hypothetical. You can't track what would have happened had this guy not, you know, been been in position or you know, uh, not made this switch. Um, and so, yeah. So we we sort of have to guess. Um, I think uh, things like box plus minus and real plus minus give us a sort of a baseline. Uh, they're not meant to be used as rankings you know if you were going to tell me so and so is the best defensive player because his real plus minus is this or this guy's a better defender than this guy because of his real plus minus um i think that's probably not uh not a good use of the number uh but if you want to sort of generalize these players are not good defenders or these players are hurting their teams uh, i think those those uh statistics are useful for that uh and then you go into the nitty-gritty then you go into the details and you go and watch video and if you think this guy is a bad defensive player because because real plus minus tells you, uh, can you find other evidence of that? You know, can you find that and can you find evidence in the video? Can you find evidence in other statistics? Um, and if you can, then uh, then you know you've you've sort of got a, a more complete picture. And if you can't, then you know maybe you need to do some more digging. And there's some I think there are some guys who. I, I don't know how to answer it for you know there are some guys who the stats are bad and they look good and there's some guys who uh, look uh, you know the stats look 
great and they look bad on the floor. And I, you know, there's there's a few guys who I don't know really how to reconcile that. Right. And by the way, there. I mean, you could be a fantastic defender and you can get scored on. You know, it, yeah. it happens. <laughs> and you know, who are your better defenders guarding? The better scores. So they yeah. might have a hand in the guy's face, made him dribble five times, fade away, whatever, and it still goes in. And then all of a sudden, he's going to get graded negatively on that. When in fact, it was probably the best defensive possession you're going to have all game. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, we were seeing it before with, like, DeAndre Jordan. The team was better with the defensive rating when he was off the floor than when he was on, which I just think was ludicrous because when you watch those games, there's no question that he, may, he's, he makes him a better defensive team. Like, I just, yeah. you know, especially with, compared to whoever else comes in for him. It's just not a – there's no doubt in my mind I'm going to get on my lawn with my pitchfork and just, you know, insist that based on what I'm watching. Yet, you know, it happened with um, Hassan Whiteside as well. Um, where you know somehow these numbers were showing that like the Heat were better when he was on the bench defensively, and I you know I just I wasn't buying it. Yeah, and I think part of that too is is um, just looking at raw on off. You're not taking into account who they're playing against. So DeAndre Jordan plays against starters, and Cole Aldrich plays against backups last year. So, you know, so uh, Aldrich is I think a pretty good defender, but he's also helped by playing against uh, you know not as good teammates. And DeAndre Jordan I think is a pretty good defender, and he probably you know looks slightly worse because he's got to play against the starters all the time. Um, yeah, those those. Uh, those those things can be um, those things can be easy to sort of lose track of. Right. I, I you know I'm thinking like right now you could probably do something with the proximity to, to the to your man when he shoots. And if if a, if, a, if a guy is consistently close to him, if you're talking about the tracking stuff, which could be automated, mm-hmm. that might be something. But I don't. What they still haven't been able to do is track if the guy's hand is up or not. I think, and that's the problem. Is you know, to me, I would be grading guys on: Did he save? Did he keep him in front of him? And did he hit a hand up on the shot? And you know, and those are the things that I think if we could kind of figure out how to automate that, maybe we'll get somewhere closer. Um, and the, the interesting thing I was just going to think about as we wrap up is. You know, the, the new stuff we understand about shooting, and that even goes to mechanics and the fundamentals that we've developed and people are learning now, um, it's almost redefined what an open shot is. So a lot of the time we've learned how to, like, now the guys can get their shot off quicker and they know how to generate those three-point shots. So the guys closing out 15, 20 years ago, you would never have shot that ball, right? The guys closing out mm-hmm. is close. You just, you're not going to shoot it. But now... These guys are good enough where, and they understand the values, where they, they, they're, they're just pulling and they're <laughs> taking these shots. And I think it's interesting because it almost, it almost has freed the player from, from being so constricted, I'd imagine, by coaching, right? It almost seems like now that we've gotten this information, um, it, it's a looser style of play in some, in some respects. Yeah, I think you see some coaches who trust their players more to sort of play in these broader concepts, um, you know, instead of... Uh, instead of sort of running things tightly and, and, you know, calling plays every time down the floor, it's the, these are our guiding principles on offense. And I trust that you guys sort of understand, you know, what, what for our, what a good shot looks like for our team. Uh, and clearly that's different for every team, you know, clay and Curry, uh, their, the gradation of, of what's an open three pointer for them is completely different than it is for almost everybody else in the league. Right. And then, and then on top of that, um, is, like in order for someone like and I've said this before, but whenever for in order for someone like Steph to take those kind of shots without passing the ball first uh, and pull up threes from deep, you gotta kind of, you have to be like a, a really really good teammate. Like you have to be a nice yeah. guy. Your teammates have to kind of like you, right? Because if you're if you're a jerk and then now you're coming down and shooting four three or maybe three threes a game where you're not even passing, like that's just going to engender a lot of ill will, and you can't measure that. There's no analytics for that. Yeah. Uh, but you, 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 I can guarantee you're, you're going to see guys like, well, Mo Spates last year, those guys will not run back on defense very hard if they're getting pissed off at that. So, uh, And by the way, Damian Lillard's the same way, and he's probably one of the best teammates in the league as well. He probably understands that. He's like, I better, you know, it's kind of like when the quarterback buys the lineman gold watches or something like that, yeah. or steak dinners. That's what you got to do. And, uh, you know, let me ask you before we wrap up, um, is there still data around that tells you how close the defender was on the shot? I know the NBA savant was doing it, but I feel like uh, that information went away because they weren't updating it. Yeah, in the uh, up until the middle of last year, they had a um, you could see logs, so you could see on an individual you could see each individual shot who was the closest defender, how far away they were, how many dribbles were taken, all of the uh, all of that stuff, uh, and the logs were taken away, and so now you can just see it in the aggregate. So you can see uh, instead of seeing every shot that Clay Thompson took and who the closest defender was and how far away they were, you can just see a, a buck 
good. So all of Clay, his field goal percentage for all of his shots where the defender was zero to two feet, two to four feet, four to six, or six plus. Um, so instead of being able to see it at an individual level, you can just sort of see the averages for a couple categories. Um, so a couple things that we used to do at Nylon Calculus are no longer possible because those logs are gone. Um, and the same thing with NBA Savant, although they still take, um, they still pull stuff from play-by-play data. So there's still a lot you can do with NBA Savant, but they, uh, it doesn't include defender distance anymore, uh, not, not on individual shots. Okay, that's too bad because that, that's the thing I like the most is I want to know, you know, who is shooting what from what's, what, you know, defender distance. But uh, weird, maybe maybe they'll figure out that that was a bad thing to take down and put it back uh, and let us let us have that again because that's that's worthy of, uh, of a- analysis, I'd imagine. Yeah, it was uh, it was a great thing. My uh, my understanding was that um, a lot of people were scraping it. Uh, it was a it was a. I mean, it's a private data set. It's from SportView. It's owned by Stats LLC. Uh, they provided it to the NBA and allowed to make it public. Um, and that was uh, in the contract between the NBA and uh, and Stats. Um, and so, uh, you know, because that that data was not available for the first year that they had the SportView stats up. So they added it then for about a year and a half and then took it away. But my understanding was that the problem was that there were so many people scraping that data to manipulate it, to, you know, build things like NBA Savant's database and, you know, the stuff we were doing at Nylon Calculus, that um, it was actually slowing the performance of the website, that they could see it on oh. their servers, that the NBA stats site had slowed down because uh, so many people were scraping the data and, and doing stuff with it. Oh, um, I'm not I'm not positive that that's the the only uh answer but that was uh, that was one of the things i had heard well I, I can tell you right now that the speed of the nba stat site has not improved uh, at all since they've shut that down and it what are we <laughs> talking about 100 people scraping come on they couldn't have been that many even though you say it's a lot right I, like you know there's not like russian scrapers out there you know <laughs> looking for you know data anyhow uh well maybe they'll figure that out or someone will or i'll have to like you know make some connection in the deep dark recesses of the basement of the nba com. Um, well, Ian, thanks for joining us and, and breaking this stuff down. I think it's really some really important concepts that you've been able to help us and help me understand better so that my breakdowns will be a lot better this year. And when I use stats, I'll use them correctly. Um, so you'll have to come back on. We'll have to keep talking about this. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on. You got it. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel, we're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Ian? <laughs> I am. I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in store.